All right, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. I am very excited to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you again this morning. And we're going to begin by reading verses 1 to 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. It says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word. Folks, if you were to know me when I was a college student, you would know that I am a very, very different person than I was back then. If you know me at all now, you know that I love to be organized in life. I, I love a good clean calendar with all the items color-coordinated all the way down. I love a good to-do list to get me through the day. I love tracking how I use my time on a daily basis. I love future planning. But that is not at all who I was when I was in college. Procrastination was my middle name when I was in college. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it was on the enrollment papers. Joel Procrastination Shory, or Joel, I can do that later, Shory, or Joel, the semester is so long, we can do that later, Shory. This is who I was. In fact, the first real interaction that I ever had with my lovely wife, Ashley, was when I wanted to mooch off of her to study for the final exam because the end of the semester had crept up on me and I only had one page of notes for the entire class. I needed help and so I looked to Ashley. I wonder if any of you college students can relate to this or anybody else here. Isn't it so easy to procrastinate in life just to, to delay things? Particularly during a, a college semester 
or maybe it's with a house project, or maybe a, a project at work or a relationship that you need to mend, we can look into the future and feel like we have all the time in the world, right? I mean, a semester is like three to four months long. That's a lot of time, right, to get things done. Certainly, we can go out and hang with our friends tonight. But then, how many of us know the terrible feeling of when we suddenly wake up and realize, oh, three months have flown by and we are not at all ready for that final exam or that research paper. That's, that's a terrible feeling. Folks, this is very much what we are hearing Peter talk about in this passage today. Peter is challenging the false teachers of his day by speaking to the Christians in the church and reminding them that the end is coming. The false teachers were, were telling people that the end of time was not going to come, that there was no need to feel an urgency in their Christian life to live holy and godly lives, that they could just do whatever they wanted to do because the end wasn't going to come and things were just going to continue on as they were. But Peter reminds them, and Peter reminds us this morning, that that is a lie. And that as the people of God, we need to remember that the end is coming and that we need to allow that reality to change how we live today. In fact, that captures the, the main idea of this, this, this passage this morning fairly well. Here it is. Remembering that the end will come will lead us to live holy lives today. Remembering that the end will come will lead us to live holy lives today. That's, that's the main idea. Folks, do you ever wonder why the church cares so much about how we live and how we act? Do you ever wonder why holiness is so important and why we care so much about sexual purity and why we seek to love one another well and, and why we seek to, to be generous towards others and to the church with our finances? And if you're already convinced of those things, have you, have you ever wondered how you can succeed in those things and grow in those things even more? How can we live holy lives today? Well, Peter gives us four points to help us to understand this more fully. Point number one, remember that the end will come. Point number two, don't overlook the pattern of history. Point number three, keep time as God keeps time. And point number four, live according to his promise. And let's begin with the first. Point number one, remember that the end will come. We see the importance of remembering right away in verse 1 when Peter says that, that the entire purpose of his writing these letters is to help these people remember, right? He says, look at verse 1, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter, Peter clearly wants us to remember something. Now, what does he want us to remember? Well, in verse 2, it continues that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so what are those predictions and commandments from the prophets and the apostles? Well, we find out what we are supposed to remember by Peter noting what we are being tempted to forget by these false teachers. Again, in verse 4, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And what are they going to scoff about? Verse 4, they will deny the promise of his second coming. And so what Peter is reminding us of is what the false teachers so desperately want us to forget, that Christ is coming back again. And so, friends, what we are talking about here is, 
is the end times. Peter's, Peter's wanting us to remember that the end times are coming and that we should prepare for them accordingly. And we've talked a lot about heaven throughout 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but Peter is focusing more on what we see in the text, the day of the Lord, which seems to focus even more on the actual event of his return and the judgment that will come. Now, even as I say that, I imagine that some of your ears perk up a little bit and say, yeah, let's talk about end times a little bit more. And some of you are silently praying under your mask, no, please, let's not talk about the end times at all. Why? Because, folks, there are few things in God's word that are as confusing and often debated as eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. And debates have raged for centuries about different eschatological perspectives. How is this world going to come to an end? What is the millennium? When is the millennium going to happen? Who is the Antichrist? What do the numbers 666 represent? Is there a rapture where Christians are just suddenly pulled out of this world? Is there not a rapture? Will Israel return to political power or will they not? These are all questions that have to do with eschatology and people have very, very strong opinions about them all. In fact, let me, let me summarize three of the main eschatological perspectives that are out there. There, there are many different variations of each and every one of these, uh, but let me just summarize three for us this morning. First of all, you have the premillennial perspective. So premillennialism holds to a, a very literal, non-figurative interpretation of the events that we find in the book of Revelation and in Daniel and in other apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So, so a premillennialist reads each of the end time passages as being literal events that will happen just as they are written about. They, they believe that there will be a rapture that takes the church away Following that rapture, there will be a seven-year tribulation led by the Antichrist, which will then be followed by a millennium or a thousand-year reign, that's what millennium means, of, of Christ, where, where, where Israel comes to great power again, after which the end will come. The, the premillennialist believes that there is a very unique and distinct purpose between the church and Israel. And so traditionally, because of these beliefs, premillennial uh, the premillennial camp is, is very focused on, on reading and interpreting current events, signs of, of the end. Who's, who's the Antichrist? Is Israel returning to political power? Now, a value to the premillennial perspective is that you are forced to live very much in anticipation of the end, which is something that Christ very much wants us to do. So that's the premillennial perspective. Second, you have the post-millennial perspective. At, at the heart of the post-millennial perspective is the belief that the progress of the gospel and the, and the growth of the church is going to increase more and more until the great majority of the people in the world are living in obedience to Christ. So, so the gospel is going to grow like a plan. The world is going to get better and better until there is this, this climactic moment when Christ comes again. And when he comes again, this is going to result in an age of, of much peace and righteousness. The postmillennials differ on whether that is a literal thousand-year reign or a metaphor, metaphorical thousand-year reign. But, but after that millennium, Christ will return again, hence the, the post or after the millennium. Uh, he will return and bring everybody back to heaven. 
That's the post-millennial perspective. A value to this perspective is that the post-millennial camp really works hard in the areas of politics and in social justices because, because they think it's the responsibility of the church to grow and increase the righteousness in this world so that Christ can come again. And they just have a really big view of the gospel, that it can truly transform our world. And then now, third, we have the amillennial perspective. The amillennial perspective believes that many of the things written in Revelation and in Daniel and in other parts of the scriptures are not always to be interpreted literally, but more figuratively. And I actually agree with this position. And an amillennial doesn't believe in a, a literal millennium or a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, but rather that when Scripture speaks of the thousand-year reign or the millennium, he, Scripture is speaking of a of a really long and predetermined period of time. And therefore, the amillennial believes that we are currently in the millennium right now. From Christ's ascension, when he rose from the grave and then returned to the Father, all the way to his second coming, this is the millennium. And throughout this time, the church is going to grow and mature and develop. But at the same time, evil and sin is also going to grow and increase and develop until that final day which nobody knows the day or the hour of when Christ comes back to bring an end to this world. That's the amillennial perspective. This is where both Jason and I fall. And so one of the values to this perspective is that we don't need to endlessly try to read the cultural times that we are in. We, we, we don't think that today's trials are necessarily worse than yesterday's trials. Even as bad as things are right now, things are bad in America. But even as bad as they are, we don't necessarily need to think, oh, this is the end. These things point to the end, but they don't necessarily say that this is the end. And we are just seeking to live for God's glory as we wait for his second coming day by day. So those are the three main camps. Now, here's the thing. We don't think that it is essential to Christian faithfulness to have all these things, have all things related to eschatology perfectly figured out in your life, which is why we have members here who are pre or post or amill. The, the emphatic emphasis throughout the New Testament is to not focus on exactly how the end will come, but to know that the end will come. Right? We've seen that throughout 1 Peter and throughout 2 Peter. We even saw it back in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13 when Jesus said to his disciples over and over, stay awake. And that really is what the call is on every Christian's Life. And that's what Peter is trying to help us to do here. Remember that the end is coming. You may not know exactly how it's going to come, but don't forget that it is coming. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, don't overlook the pattern of history. So when I was a college student, <laughs> you would have thought with a moderate degree of intelligence that I would have learned my lesson in semesters one and two of my freshman year, and then I would have realized, oh yeah, this isn't working out so good. The semester always ends faster than I anticipated, and so I should change my planning, and I should prepare better than I did before. You would think that I would have learned my lesson, but, but I didn't. Every, every single semester was the same throughout my entire college life. It was terrible. But folks, Peter says, that that's exactly what these false teachers are doing as well. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, They deliberately overlook this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So they're ignoring the reality of God and then they're also ignoring that by means of these, by means of his word and by water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Noah and the flood. Peter is saying that these false teachers are ignoring the, the reality of how God has related to this world in the past. And he says, if you need a reminder, look back to Noah and the ark. And even earlier in chapter 2, we saw two other significant moments of God's judgment in world history. Peter talked about the casting down of the angels and, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What, what Peter is helping us to see here is that there have been other times when, when the world has acted as if God was not present and acted as if his judgment was not coming. I mean, do you remember the people in Noah's day that, and how they scoffed and, and mocked at him for building that ark? Peter wants us to remember that our culture is not the first to ignore the coming day of the Lord. Even as they ignore it, though, that doesn't change the reality of what will happen. Look again at verse 7. It says, but by the same word, the same word as in the days of Noah, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. P Peter's saying that, that if we remember how last semester went, we should change how we act this semester. If we remember how God has treated sin and iniquity in the past, and if we remember that he has promised to relate to sin and death and iniquity in the same way again, we won't be surprised when the end comes again. In church, we will anticipate it together as a church family. Which brings us to our third point. How can we live holy lives is the question. Point number three, keep time as God keeps time. Look at verse eight. It says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter is saying that the Lord doesn't tell time the way that we tell time. These false teachers had been lulled to sleep by the delay of time in Christ's return. But Peter says that in the mind of God, God who stands outside of time in, in the big picture, there hasn't been much of a delay at all. A thousand years is like a day to the one who is eternal. To the one who exists outside of time, time does not function in the same way that it does for those of us who were created within time. But Peter is trying to tell us that if we want to live how we are supposed to live, we need to try to tell time the way that God tells time. In other words, we need to seek to remember that with eternity in view, which goes on and on, our lives, your life, your family's life is very short. The false teachers wanted to focus on how long and, and permanent our lives feel in this world, but that's not a biblical perspective, church. How long does the Bible say your life will last? Do you know? It's not very long. It's surprisingly short. James chapter 4 says that your life is like a mist that appears for a little time and then it's gone. 
First Peter chapter 1 says that, that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. My lawn looks so good back in April. It's not looking so good right now in the heat of, of the sun. That's like our life. Peter says the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Psalm 90 says the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The message throughout scripture from beginning to end is that we need to not allow what feels like permanency and what feels like slowness in this life to convince us that this life is all that there is. Look at what Peter says in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's, he's not acting slowly. He's actually just being patient with you and me. And he's being patient because of his heart for us, his heart of compassion. He, even though it makes very little difference to the Lord whether he comes back today or 10 years. It's like no difference in how he tells time. He has delayed his second coming in order to give this world an opportunity to come to him and to experience his great love and his amazing grace. Church, let's not mistake God's heart for us. As, as God's people, we are called to rest in him, to find peace in him, to live our lives in a, in a calm way before him. Christ does not call us, as we consider ex eschatology, to live hurried and frantic lives, not running around screaming that the sky is going to fall, and we're to have peace. But if we're going to please him with our lives, we must still keep the end in view. We must remember the brevity of life. We must tell time the way that the Lord tells times because it will compel us with an urgency to live how we are supposed to live, to respond to his great grace in our lives with holiness and godliness before him. And friends, that brings us to our fourth and our final point this morning. Point number four, live according to his promise. You can see the word promise three times in our passage, in verse 4, in verse 9, and verse 13. So Peter is speaking of how the second coming of Christ is promised. It is guaranteed. There's no question about it. And then all of this, our text culminates in verses 11 to 13, even a little bit into 14, where we see this phrase, waiting for, occur rapidly three times in those final verses. P Peter is saying that the end is guaranteed, it's promised, God's word is sure, and that you and I as Christians should actively wait for it. And so how? How do we actively wait for it? Well, let's look at the rhetorical question of verse 11. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the end is coming. Heaven and earth will pass away, and Christ will create a new heavens and a new earth. He says, since this is going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and, and godliness? Since the end is coming, since this world as we know it will not remain, what ought we to be as Christians? Christian, who are you called to be? What are you called to do? How should you act? It's all a rhetorical question because the answer is clear. We are to pursue godliness and holiness and obedience with every ounce of our being. 
remembering that the end will come will change how we live today. It must change how we live today because this is what 2 Peter has been all about. Talking to us about making every effort to, to live for Jesus even while remaining in a sinful and corrupt world. world. Loving his, his word, obeying his word, sharing his word with the lost. This is what we're called to. And church, it is a glorious and happy and eternal calling. And it is a glorious and eternal and happy calling because it comes from a God who is glorious and eternal and happy and he loves us in his son Christ. This is his work, not our work this morning, though we participate in it very actively. He who loves us with an everlasting love is calling us to this sort of obedience. I, I don't know if you've noticed the difference in tone in chapter 3 from, from chapter 2. If you remember from, from three weeks ago, Peter did a lot of yelling in chapter 2, didn't he? He was kind of worked up about these, these false teachers. He spoke very forcefully. But did you know how chapter 3 began? Verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And then in verse 8, again, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He's speaking to us very gently and affectionately. Why? Because we are the people of God. We we are those that have been saved by God's grace and mercy. And and we are the beloved. We are those that God loves to forgive. He, He loves to show mercy to us. He loves to shower his grace on us when we mess up for the 15th time. That's what he does best. That's who he is. That's why he's made us so that we can see the beauty and the glory of his grace and kindness. This is who we are, and this is why we can seek to put on lives of holiness and godliness. Because listen, friend, it is not a matter of earning God's favor and his acceptance. It's not even a matter of obtaining sinful perfection in this life as Christians. It's a matter of resting in his glorious grace and living out his grace whenever and however we can. In chapter 1, we saw that in Christ, we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness. That struggle in your life right now, that burden that you're bearing, that relationship that is proving harder than you anticipated, you have everything that you need in Christ to navigate that and to live for his glory. Now we just need to live it out. We just need to follow. We just need to obey So that on that final day when Christ comes as king and as judge, because friends, he's coming. He's coming and he's going to say, how are you saved and how have you lived? And on that day, we will be able to say, by God's grace, we're we're here. We're able to stand before you because, Lord, you hung on that cross in my place. You died for me. You shed your blood. You paid the penalty that I could not pay. And in that, and through your resurrection, you gave me life. And you filled me with your spirit, and you enabled me to live a life of obedience day after day. It wasn't perfect, Lord, but it was for you, and it was by your grace and for your glory. And so, Lord, I love you, and I want to be accepted by you. And he's going to say, come. Come on. Let's come in. And church, as we close, I just want to encourage you as a church family 
that this sort of grace, this understanding of grace, and that it's not just something we sing about, but it's something that we live out as well. I want to I encourage you that this is very present in all of you. God is active among you. God is working among you. Just this week I had, had multiple conversations with, with some of you about how you want the bonds of, of lust and pornography to be broken in your life and how you have taken bold and courageous steps to fight against that sin by, by, by bringing restrictions and asking for accountability from friends. I've had, I've had conversations from some of you about your marriages and how dissatisfied you are with where your marriage is at and how, how badly you want to experience more of God's grace in the home as you seek to love one another well. That's God leading you. I've had conversations about how you want to pursue social justice in our world and to care for the poor and to fight for the unborn and to work for racial unity. That's God at work in you. I've had conversations with you about evangelism. Church, evangelism. As we read this text, uh, our burden for evangelism should grow, right? Verse 9 says that the Lord wishes that all should reach repentance. Church, that should make us very bold in our outreach and in our evangelism. He is with us, and he wants many to be saved. And so let's be bold and courageous as we reach out to friends and family. Church, there is so much grace in your lives. We thank God for you. There's much to celebrate. Praise God for his grace. But may we not grow complacent in who we are. But may we keep eternity in view, and may we seek to live for that day alone. May we live according to his promise. Amen. Let's pray.